So as you all know, I'm Clark Irvin. Good morning. Thank you very much for being here on this lovely December morning. We're so pleased to have with us an old friend of St. John's, Lonnie Bunch, the 14th Secretary of the Smithsonian. He assumed the position in July of 2019, and in this position, as we were just discussing, he oversees no fewer than 19 museums, 21 uh, libraries, the National Zoo, and numerous education and research centers and two new museums, which I didn't know, the National Museum of the American Latino and the Smithsonian American Women's History Museum are now in development. Previously, as we all know, he was the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, and when he started that museum in 2005, he had one staff member, no collections, no funding, and no site. Driven by optimism and a determination to build a museum that, in his words, would make America better, he transformed that vision, as we all know, into a dramatic reality. Since its opening in 2016, the museum has welcomed more than 6 million visitors. It's up to 8 million. Up to 8 million. (laughs) Well, I just looked at the website last night, so that was was really (laughs) dramatic growth. 8 million visitors a collection of 40,000 objects, and is housed in a striking building on the National Mall that is the first green building on the Mall. He's the recipient of several prestigious awards, including the Tony Horwitz Prize, honoring distinguished work in American history of wide appeal and enduring public significance. And I learned last night from Riley that tomorrow night, Mr. Bunch will be the recipient at the French Ambassador's Residence of the Legion of Honor. He was telling me that he's a Jersey boy, and he earned undergraduate and graduate degrees here in Washington at American University. With that, please join me in welcoming Lonnie Bunch. It is um, an unbelievable honor to be with you today for many reasons. One is, candidly, to be in the Togo West Pollard means a great deal to me. Um, Togo has been <laughs> great supporters of me and the museum, and so it's just an honor to be here. An honor to be in a church that has done a lot to help Washington remember that the most important thing is to be, be a place where everybody's free and fair. Um, and so it means a great deal to be here. And to see so many of my old friends, Riley, and but to be perfectly honest, I'm here because Fleur Pesor said I had to be. For, for 10 years, Fleur Pesor told me what to do, and it served me in good stick. So I'm always pleased to be here with her. What I want to do is talk briefly about the challenge of building a museum, and then I can answer questions about the Smithsonian writ large if you'd like. I always begin by telling the story of Princey Jenkins. Princey Jenkins was um, a 90-year-old man who lived his whole life on an old plantation, um, the Friendfield Rice Plantation above, above Georgetown, South Carolina. And when I was doing research on slavery, I met him because there were actual four or five slave cabins in the 1840s still standing. And he lived in one of them with his enslaved grandmother. So you could imagine to a historian, this is the Holy Grail. Somebody who lived in this and understood the story of enslavement. 
And he was amazing. He took me to the front of the cabin and he talked about how his enslaved ancestors did a hard sweep with a broom to get rid of the grass so there'd be no vermin. He talked about the role that children played watching the chimney, making sure it didn't catch fire. He then took me to the back of the cabin and talked for an hour about what his ancestors grew there um, to feed themselves, to supplement what they were given by the master. And then we went to the foreside, or rather, I went to the foreside. He didn't come. And I said, Mr. Jenkins, please tell me what happened over here. He said, I'm not going over there. And I said, Mr. Jenkins, why not? And he said, because there's nothing but rattlesnakes over there. <laughs> now, after I stopped running, I, you know, I'm from Jersey. I'm used to two-legged snakes, not, you know. So when I stopped running, I said, you know, why didn't you tell me? And he said, you know, people used to remember, now they forget. And that maybe, I'm not even sure what a historian does, but maybe your job is to make sure people remember not just what they want to remember, but what they need to remember. And that really stayed with me my whole career. In many ways, I think you can tell a lot about a country by what it remembers, what it puts on the walls of its museums, what monuments it creates, what holidays it celebrates. But I think you can tell even more by what it forgets, what stories it omits. And often the story of African Americans are omitted. And that in essence, the creation of the National Museum of African American History and Culture was a hundred year journey to help people to remember to help people to make sure that they knew the strength, the importance, the impact of the African-American experience. And when you think about this struggle, it began in 1913. In 1913, there were great celebrations about the end of the Civil War, old Yankees and old rebels shaking hands. But rarely did you see anybody African-American, even though 200,000 African-Americans participated in the war. So they began to say, how do we tell that story? Let us build a black presence on the National Mall. And there was money raised, and it looked like there might be something on the mall. Then World War I happens. Obviously, it took everybody's attention away. And then, here's a name you never hear me say, Calvin Coolidge. In the 1920s, Calvin Coolidge felt it would be important for him to help build an African-American museum. He got legislation passed. They actually hired an architect and began to design. But, you know, something like the Great Depression happened. So that took people's attention away. And this idea lay fallow until the 1960s. And in the 1960s, an array of people came together and said, let's build a museum. But then the assassination of Martin Luther King, the cities went up in flame. People's attention was diverted away from a museum. And it really wasn't until two, in the early 2000s, after people like John Lewis and Matt Cleland worked for years to find bipartisan support. At one point, they thought they had this in the 1990s, and Senator Jesse Helms killed it. Then in 2003, this amazing group of people came together, got the support, passed the legislation. And that legislation was successful partly because, for the first time, it was bipartisan. It used to be it was a Republican issue, a Democratic issue. But John Lewis, the great leader, brought together this amazing coalition. And because of John Lewis, I think this legislation passed. Also, it passed because you had 50 years of scholarship. The Smithsonian is a place that's run by scholarship more than anything else. And suddenly you had the work of John Hope Franklin and so many others. So you had a museum that was really, the time was now. And then in 2005, I came back to run this museum, or as we call it, as you define it, we call it the Museum of No. We had nothing. Um, but what we had, though, was a vision of what this museum could be. 
what we had was a realization that this museum, hearing Mr. Mr. Jenkins in my mind, this museum had to be a place where people remember, where people remember the rich history and the impact of the African-American experience. It had to be a place that allowed you to remember in new ways names you knew, Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and Marian Anderson. But it also had to introduce you to a whole array of people you didn't know. The enslaved woman who got up every day and fed her kids before she went into the fields and refused to let the fields strip her of her humanity, of her hope. Or the family that left Alabama for the south side of Chicago in 1913 looking for a better day. It had to help you remember people you didn't know. But it also had to really allow us as Americans to confront our tortured racial past. This had to be a museum in our mind that would allow people to cry when they pondered the pain of slavery or segregation. But they also had to find the joy that was in this community. They had to tap their toes to Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, or somebody from the hip hop world. I have no idea who that would have been, um, but you tap your toes nonetheless. In essence, it had to be a place where you can dip into history and understand this story. But candidly, if it only told the story of a community for a community, then it failed. In our mind, the story of black America was a story that was a story that shaped us all. And that what we wanted to do is create a museum that said, this is a lens through a particular community story to understand who we all are. When we want to think about core American values of spirituality, resiliency, optimism, where better to look than within this community? When we want to understand the promise of America and the limits of that promise, where better to look? So in essence, the story for us was to craft a place that would be a place that would shape us all, and that we must remember that this was the quintessential American story. I wanted everybody who went to that museum to realize this was their story too. And obviously, for us, thinking about crafting a museum, we also had to think about how does it fit in an international context? How could it no longer just simply be seen as an American story? And we wanted this to be a museum that would help us all understand how we have been shaped by international considerations and how the African-American experience shapes the globe. But I really wasn't sure of that until I was on a trip to the Arctic Circle. I was in Finland. And I went to see a village elder. And under this reindeer skin tent, he said to me, I've got two questions. Okay. First question is, are you an American? Yep, I can say yes to that. Second question was, do you know Al Green? And I said, Al Green the singer? I'm in the middle of nowhere, and this guy knew Al Green the singer. And that told me the power of this culture. If it made in the middle of nowhere that this guy wanted to know if I personally knew Al Green, that really hit me. And when I got back, I actually called Al Green. <laughs> And I was going to tell him the story, and he said to me, of course they know me. I was like, okay, never mind, never mind. But when you think about building a national museum, you really begin to think about what are the challenges you face. There were so many challenges that it was really essential to figure this out. How do you grapple with all of these issues? I mean, I think about it. I think about the challenge of conceptualizing a museum. I mean, what is a national museum when you start from scratch. How do you craft a narrative that's comprehensive and encyclopedic, but also exciting and engaging? 
How do you explain with the array of scholarship what choices you're going to make, what stories are going to left out, what stories are going to, you're going to celebrate? And how do you realize that this museum had to be more than a place that captured stories, more than a site to capture memories, but it had to use these stories, these histories, to mold and reshape our national identity? Can we realize that this museum had to reshape and racialize America's identity? How can we reduce the role of these big stories of slavery and segregation? How do you reduce them to human scale so people will engage with them? And really, what's the role of Africa in an African-American museum? I mean, there were really myriad of questions we wrestled with. What's a national museum in a pan-national age? So that in essence, this was really the first time we had to create a modern museum that was built on the traditions of the Smithsonian, but that would really grapple with the 21st century. But maybe more than anything else, the most important thing conceptually we wanted to figure out is, how do you help Americans grapple with ambiguity? Americans love simple answers to complex questions. And we see now the problem of that. And we wanted a museum to help people embrace ambiguity, to understand complexity, nuance, the shades of gray. We thought if we could do that, that would be a major contribution to what we contribute to America. Because our goal was not to be the best museum we could be, but to be a site that could change a nation to be a site that could make America better, that could be a site that allowed America to boldly and bravely embrace its past, but to use that to point us towards a better shared future. So that was really the uh, under, underpinning of everything we did. But I think that when I think about the challenge, one was clearly managing Congress. As you know, in this town, you don't manage Congress, right? Um, but the Smithsonian, because Congress is its major supporter, uh, you have to sort of deal with the, ooh, the various directions that will come, often conflicting, that will come from Congress. And I was really struck, how do we do this? And it really came home to me that I needed to figure out how to work with Congress right early in this process. In my first couple of weeks, I was meeting members of Congress, and I was taken to a member of the Appropriation Committee in the House. And they the staff told me that you know he wasn't going to like me, he wasn't going to like the Smithsonian. And I said, oh, well, I don't know how this is going to work out. The night before the meeting, I was at the Library of Congress, and so was he. We had this wonderful chat that he was from North Carolina, my mother was from North Carolina. I thought, piece of cake, I got this. I walk into his office and I said, good morning, Congressman, he cuts me off. He says, listen, I don't like what you're doing. I think the Smithsonian's making a major mistake. We should not have this kind of museum. And he kept saying, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you $25,000, make it a website and go away. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. He kept saying, make it a website and go away. And finally, when he took a breath, I said, you know, I used to be a curator at the Museum of American History. And I remember the power of the authentic, the Greensboro lunch counter that I collected or the Star Spangled Banner. Well, suddenly this member of Congress starts turning red and he starts putting his hand to his throat and tears are running down his eye. And I'm thinking, great, my job is over. Bunch kills member of Congress in the news. <laughs> it turned out he just started crying and they take me out of the room and I'm trying to figure out what did I do wrong? 
And he comes out after 20 minutes and he says, you know, I had forgotten that I was a college student during the Greensboro sit-ins of 1960 and that I actually raised money to bail people out of jail. And it, it was so touched and so moving, he put his arm around me and he said, I really like you. I'm not going to give you any money, but I really like you. But it taught me that what I needed to do was to have 40 angels in Congress, that I couldn't manage everybody, but if I had 40 people from both sides of the aisle who would speak in favor of what we did, that's all we needed. We just needed a tie. And we were able to build those allies across the board, and they supported us time and time and time again. But in many ways, when I say what are some of the bigger challenges, one was the notion of how do you handle the conflicting expectations of what people thought this museum would be and of how the stories it should tell. I remember that I received a letter that began, Dear Left-Wing Historian. So I knew it wasn't a fan letter. Um, and it went on, though, it went on very seriously. It said, what happened to the Smithsonian I loved? It used to be the place that told stories we were proud of. It used to be a place that celebrated America. Now, you're going to tell stories that are better left unsaid. Isn't that wrong? And then he wrote a line that I've never forgotten. He said, don't you understand that America's greatest strength is its ability to forget? And I remember thinking, okay, I've got to grapple with this. And I'm, as I pondered the letter, I continue to read it. And, and the letter goes on to basically say, you know, people like me shouldn't be hired at the Smithsonian. It's a horrible day that when I came to work at the Smithsonian. But I must admit, the letter threw me off because he signed it at the end. Best wishes for your continued success. <laughs> but I think that in many ways... What this really mean, told us is that there are going to be very conflicting ways of how to tell this story. I can remember very powerfully taking a walk on, near the mall and on a Sunday, and there was an elderly African-American woman clearly coming back from church, and she looked at me and she smiled, obviously the day before mask, and she smiled and she hugged me and said, I just want to thank you for what you're doing, but please, please, please don't tell the story of slavery. There was this real sense that if you told the story of slavery, it was a story that was embarrassing. Embarrassing for African Americans, embarrassing for non-African Americans, and there were a lot of people who said, please don't tell that story. I had other people call me and say, what you need to do is make it a Holocaust museum. It has to be a horrible museum about what they did to us. I had others who said, whatever you do, recognize that you've got an opportunity to engage new generations who know nothing about these issues. And maybe the key is to let those issues be unsaid so that these kids will have a positive self-image. And I realized that the key for us was how are we going to find ways to navigate all those conflicting visions? The way we did it was scholarship and knowledge. We actually spent three years going around the country, really going around the globe, interviewing people, understanding what they wanted, understanding what they didn't understand. And what was clear to me is that the number one story that people wanted was for us to tell the story of slavery. And the number one story they didn't want was for us to tell the story of slavery. So I knew then, if you've been in the museum, I decided that the foundation would be slavery. 
that you would start at the bottom floors and you would grapple with this question that has divided us. Because I thought that was really crucially important. Because ultimately, my belief was that America was brave enough, strong enough to be able to understand itself in ways that it hadn't in the past. And that I wanted this museum to be the beacon to do that. But the challenge really was, I would argue, the biggest challenge we had was how do you build the collections? How do you find the stuff of history? You know, I worked at the Air and Space Museum. I worked at American History. And I realized that even if I went to the Smithsonian and took everything they had, it would only be 20% of what we needed. And I realized that I never wanted all things African-American to be in one museum. I wanted the Smithsonian Art Museum to explore African-Americans through art. I wanted Air and Space to tell the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. So that meant that we had to find collections. And I remember testifying for Congress, and they said, well, can you find the important artifacts of history? And I lied. I said, absolutely. <laughs> I had no idea if we could. But I remember early in my career, I was doing research in Southern California. And I was told that this woman had collections that would be helpful. And I went to see her, and she basically said, you know, I don't have anything. Why are you bothering me? And to get rid of me, she said, well, go look in the garage. Well, the garage was this treasure trove of stuff, and I've never forgotten that. And I thought, how do I do that? Well, one night, I actually woke up early and turned on the TV, and there was Antique Roadshow. I had never heard of that thing. And I thought, what a great idea. So I stole it. I basically said, let us do Saving African American Treasures by going around the country, bringing great scholars, people not a conserve, grandma's old shawl, and that we would basically tell people to bring out their stuff. And we'd say that we're not here to collect it. We're here to help you preserve it, how to protect that 19th century watch that you had. But what would happen is people would bring things out, and they'd say, would you like to have it? And I'm amazed at what came out. One of the great discoveries for us was material from Harriet Tubman. There was a great collector, Charles Bloxon, in Philadelphia, who, when we were there, called me and said, I want to show you things from Harriet Tubman. And I said, hey, you don't have anything from Harriet Tubman. Nobody does. And Charles Bloxon is about 6'4", about 300 pounds, and he brings me into this office, and he has this tiny little box. And he reaches in, and he pulls out pictures of Harriet Tubman's funeral that no one had ever seen. And I said, oh, my goodness. And when I said that, he got excited and he punched me. It hurt. He pulled out 33 things and punched me every time. But he pulled out this hymnal that Harriet Tubman had all those spirituals that she would sing when she'd go into the South. Steal away Jesus, swing low, sweet chariot. And I'm crying. I don't know from the pain or from the material, but I'm crying. And then he pulled out a shawl. There's a famous picture of Harriet Tubman three days before she died wrapped in a shawl, and that shawl was sitting in front of me. And I was overwhelmed, and I was overwhelmed because I realized, he's probably going to want money. I don't have money. How am I going to do this? And I said to him, okay, what's it going to take for this to come to the Smithsonian? And he said, shake my hand. To me, that was the success of the museum, that people said, this is a place we can trust. This is the Smithsonian, and we can give you these collections. And oh, they were just amazing. And I could tell you a million stories, but I'll tell you just two. One is an example of how I didn't know what I was doing. 
I called Chuck Berry, who made a lot of those early songs, Ribbon and Blues, and I said, Chuck, I want one of the guitars you wrote Maybelline on. He said, well, I will give you the guitar if you take my car, my candy apple red Cadillac. I said, I don't want a 1972 Cadillac. And my staff said to me, no, Lonnie, this is really important. You should do this. And I'm like, I don't want a Cadillac. But I said, all right, fine. They were right. So I sent this guy on one of his first trips for us, Kevin Young. Kevin, um, what was Kevin's last name? I forgot. Kevin Young, I hired somebody else. Thank you. Okay. So Kevin, let me just say Kevin. And so I sent him to St. Louis to see Chuck Berry. And when he gets there, he calls me and says, Chuck Berry's mad. He, he refuses to sign the deed of gift. He won't give you his collections. And I said, why? And he said, well, you need to talk to him. So I get on the phone with Chuck Berry, and he starts yelling at me, saying, I don't trust you because you work for the federal government. I forgot he had tax problems. <laughs> so he really didn't like the federal government. But I said to him, I said, okay, what's it going to take for this to work? And he said, have your guy eat lunch for me. So I said to Kevin, I don't care what he serves, eat it. Chuck Berry brought out 25 ice cream sandwiches. After Kevin ate 13, he signed a deed of gifts. <laughs> the thing you do to get collection for the Smithsonian. But I'll tell you, the thing that moves me the most is something that's not even on display. I had decided that I was going to um, help people understand the story of the international slave trade by actually finding remnants of a slave ship. And I had spent years negotiating with the Castros in Cuba to try to dive there, and they won't allow us to do it. And then I was fortunate. In the 90s, every summer, I taught on Robben Island. So most of the people in South Africa that run museums were my students. And one called me and said, can you bring some expertise? We might have a slave ship, um, but we need your expertise. So we went and found this slave ship that sank off the coast of Cape Town. It was a Sao Jose. It was a, Portu it was a Portuguese ship that had gone in 1794 from Lisbon, picked up 512 people from the Makua tribe in Mozambique, was on its way back to the New World when it sank off the coast of Cape Town. Half of the, quote, cargo was lost. The other half was sold the next day. So I decided that it was crucially important to go back to see the Makua people. So Fleur came with me, and we went to Mozambique, and we... We're we were treated unbelievably well. We went to talk to the chief of the Makua people, and he brought me a vessel that was wrapped with cowrie shells. And he said, this is a gift. And I opened it, and it's full of dirt. I'm trying to figure out what kind of gift this is. Then he said to us, he said, could you take this soil to the site of the wreck and sprinkle it over the site of the Sao Jose so for the first time since 1794, my people can sleep in my own land? And that, to me, was the most special moment because it taught us that what we were doing was not about yesterday. It wasn't even about today. It was about tomorrow. And for, I don't know if you remember, there was a young woman who came up to us, probably in her 40s, and she said to me, her ancestor was on the Sao Jose, and that every day we say his name. Every day. And I remember just thinking, this is why the Smithsonian can do what it does because it can do things that other places can't. And so for me, what I found fascinating is that we were able to find, as you said, 40,000 objects, of which 70%, 70% 70 
came from basements, trunks, and attics of people's homes. So in many ways, what we found out is people were waiting for the Smithsonian, waiting for the Smithsonian to share, to be there, and to tell these stories. And as I told the staff all the time, this is not about collections. This is not about stuff. What you're doing is holding people's culture, people's hopes, people's fears, people's expectations in your hand. So let us as a museum treat people in that way. Let us not think of these as old things. Think of them as living relics of people's lives. And I think that really allowed us to, to really shape the kind of collections that we wanted to have. And the last challenge was really the challenge of actually building a museum on the mall, building a building that would look a little differently. And one of the things we realized is that when we fought to get the site on the mall, there was a lot of opposition saying the museum shouldn't be on the mall. Now everybody's happy it's there. But in those early years, we were like, it shouldn't be there. And my favorite was a group said to me, well, you know, we shouldn't build a museum on that site on 15th and Constitution because if you build a museum, you're going to kill grass. <laughs> so what I did was I took a picture of the site and the grass was already dead. So I said, hey, we're not doing that. <laughs> but what was so interesting was suddenly you realize you're building on the mall. What does that mean? What kind of building can you create? And we had certain things that were we called irreducibles. We wanted a building, because I had lived in Chicago and saw how powerful architecture was in shaping the city of Chicago, I wanted to make sure that we had a significant architectural building that was also setting a model for being the first green museum on the mall. That was crucially important to me. And so we really went, we did an international design competition and ended up with Phil Freelon and David Ajay and some of the people that were crucially important to this. But our assumptions were simple. We wanted a building that spoke of uplift and resiliency. We wanted a building that would remind America that there had always been a dark presence in America. And we wanted to make sure that was never forgotten. And we also wanted to make a building that mattered. And so if you look at the building now, you see that it's got a corona, we call the corona, it's got this angle to it. And the origin story from the architect is he saw an African post that had angles like this. My origin was that I saw a picture of black women in prayer whose hands were like that. Doesn't matter what origin, it works. And that the other thing on the building is that you will see a filigree all on the building. The architects wanted to do this and just basically punch holes in it, to use a computer to punch holes. And I said, I'm paying too much money for punching holes. So I went down to Charleston and New Orleans, took pictures of all the ironwork that enslaved craft people made, and that's what's on the building. So basically, you see a way that we are honoring all those that built America who get left out of history. So in some ways, building a museum was wonderful because we had architects who wanted to build it. Um, one who said, uh, they sent me 100 pages of drawings of the museum in the shape of a black power fist. Now, there were many things I could do on the mall, but I'm not sure I could get that through. Um, we had others who said the story shouldn't be so visible, so let's make it like the Underground Railroad underneath. So we had a lot of different ideas. But ultimately, when we built the museum, the biggest challenge of construction 
was water. The mall is full of water. And the original plan of the museum was not to go down so deep, but I really wanted this sort of amazing history gallery. So I told them, ah, let's go deep. Well, they hit so much water that the engineers couldn't figure out how to stop it. And I really thought I was going to be known as the guy who built the largest swimming pool on the National Mall. But it turned out, who knew water? So I called engineers from the Netherlands. I figured they knew water better than anybody else. And they were able to get rid of the water and stabilize the building. And ultimately, you have what I think is a signature architectural building that really is a good symbol of a culture, but also a symbol of what a good green museum should be. So for me, wrestling with all those were key to figuring out how do we make this museum work. Ultimately, when I look at the museum's success, it's not just the number of people who come, but it's the diversity of people who come. The museum has the most diverse staff and the most diverse audience of any museum in the world. 40% of the people who come to that museum are not African Americans, which is really important. That's what the Smithsonian can do for you. But what moves me even more is that 25 to 30% of the people who come into that museum say they have never been into a museum in their lives. And so that be able to open these doors to new folks. And that the, that museum has the largest percentage of international visitors of any Smithsonian museum, in part because for many international visitors, their introduction to America was through African-American culture. And so in a way, it becomes sort of this place that I've, when we opened the museum, and Riley reminded me of this, um, my last line was, welcome home. And it's really become that home for Americans and for people that want to understand America. But if you ask me, what's the success? How do you know this is a successful museum? It really stems from an experience I had very early. As I was traveling around the country, I would meet people. And I have one superstition. I never get on an airplane without shining my shoes. So I know every shoe shine per You put them in the airport, I can tell exactly where they are. So I was flying back from Austin and landed in Dallas. I wanted to get my shoe shine. Elderly African-American man. He sort of starts shining my shoes, and he looks up and he says, are you that museum guy from Washington? I said, yes. He doesn't say anything else. He shines my shoes. I, I, I give him the money. And he says to me, keep this money for the museum. Now, I said to him, I said, look, come on, you're a shoeshine man. You need, to, you need this money more than I do. And he said something that was so powerful. He said, don't disrespect me. Don't you realize that this museum may be the only place where my grandchildren understand what life did for me and what I did to life. So for me, the success of the museum was always, can I keep that shoeshine man in my mind? Can we craft a museum that he would be proud of? But more importantly, can we craft a museum that his grandchildren would find understanding? And in some ways, what the shoeshine man reminded me more than anything else, what Mr. Jenkins reminded me of anything else. The best museum is a place that defines reality and still gives hope. That's what I think the African American Museum did. Thank you very much.
I will ask any question on anything at all except why my New York Giants stink. <laughs> Question. Yeah. Uh, there, and this is a wonderful story you've told about the African American Museum. But I've been on the board of the National Museum of American History, which you were so involved with as mm -hmm. well. And there is an article that was in the New York Times recently about the tidal basin oh, yeah. and the mm -hmm. overflowing of the water when we had these big storms, and that the American History Museum and uh, others may be affected by this water that is coming in and their great documents that are being, you know, I guess, in the water and they cannot have that going forward. So what is the sure. plan? Well, first of all, I would never criticize the New York Times. Um, but as a, somebody who was in charge of all the collections in American history, we knew this was an issue 20 years ago. 99% of the collections are either moved up high or they're moved off site. So there are very, things, very few things at risk. But the bigger issue is really something we've said to Congress over and over again. This is about protecting the National Mall. It's bigger than protecting one building or two buildings. So when we built the African American Museum, I actually spent the money to put in the special dikes and pumps to protect that. Um, we've argued that there ought to be an overarching plan with the Department of Interior as to how do we protect the mall, um, that it's really going to be at risk over the next 20 to 50 years. So my hope is that we will do this on a macro and a micro level. On the micro level is we've got everything prepared. We know how to handle that. We've never lost anything. Nothing has been damaged. The New York Times article, the only thing that upset me was the picture they used of a flooded interior was the National Archives. It wasn't the Smithsonian. Um, so I think that's something that we hope. In fact, I'm kind of pleased about the article because I can use that to get Congress to pay attention. So the hope would be that the Department of the Interior would work with the Smithsonian Library of Congress because basically from the lower part of the hill all the way down to the, to the Lincoln Memorial is at risk. Brian? Yeah, Monty, one of the concerns early on was uh, the existence of the museum balkanized the American story. Um, can you talk about the, the site as um, a symbol of the connection, the connectivity of the American story and whether or not it was deliberate to have it across the street from the American History Museum? And if so, is there any plan to link the museums beneath? So the notion is, should we not have, shouldn't American history be able to tell every story? Well, the reality is it can't. Uh, it's not large enough, it doesn't have the collections, it doesn't have the, so basically that's a problem. But what I realized, how do we turn that problem into a positive? The positive is, the Smithsonian gives us an opportunity to create different portals into what it means to be an American. You can go to that through technology and the Air and Space Museum, or you can look at it through the Museum of American History, or you can come to the National Museum of the American Indian. In many ways, it's sort of like, now I'm not a Civil War battle guy, but it's almost like Civil War battlefields. Each one tells you something different, but they all tell you about the Civil War. And so in a way, my argument is that this is what the Smithsonian can do that other places can't. I think, that, I think the real challenge, Riley, is how do you make connections, not even physical connections, how do you make intellectual connections? Because the Smithsonian is, oh, how do I say this? Um, the Smithsonian is wonderful fiefdoms that often don't talk to each other. 
So what I'm trying to do is say that in order to be that place where you can go to different portals and understand what it means to be an American, you've got to talk to each other and plan for that. So I think that's one of the real challenges is to get the Smithsonian to chat. And the real issue is somebody that actually began most of my career in museums. You know, the greatest thing you could say to somebody if you were a curator at the American History Museum when I was there is that you spent a year and never talked to anybody in the castle. So now my job is to help people say, you can talk to us. We can work partnerships. And so I think that kind of conversation will allow us to be an institution that gives people different ways into the same story. Joanne? Would you please um, speak about plans for these new museums that are underway? So as, as I was saying, my youngest daughter called me when the legislation was passed about a year ago and said, okay, Dad, it took 11 years for you to build one. Now you've got to build two. Um, and I think that what I've decided is, one, you're not going to see me 11 years from now. Okay, I'm not going to do that. But what I realized is I learned how to do this. So I want to set these museums on the right path. And I think the, the, there are three crucial things to get a museum going successfully. First is finding the site. Um, because the site is really not just symbolic, it's also what gives you credibility with many of the potential donors. So right now, we are evaluating a number of sites on and off the mall. There are really three sites on the mall. One is what is now the Senate parking lot. That is not going to go, you know, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to even pretend. Um, you know, I mean, you know, that's not... I know we got some folks that work for the Senate, but you know. Um, but I think the second site is the Arts and Industries building, the building that I just opened up with the Futures exhibition. And the third site is basically, if your back was to the, the African-American Museum, um, looking towards independence. There's a smaller site there. It's about three and a half acres. Those are the major sites on the mall. There are sites off the mall. Um, and so what I'm saying is we're analyzing every site but the reality is that, you know, I am not Solomon. I'm not going to say one museum's on the wall, one museum's off the wall. I'm not going to do that. So the key is either they're both on or they're both off. I think the second thing we're doing now is it's all about leadership. So we're looking to permanently hire the leaders for those two institutions. I expect to have them both hired by the spring um, so that we have that leadership. And then the third piece is really... Dem the great success of the African-American Museum was that the museum existed before the building, that we had programs, we had exhibit spaces, we could demonstrate to the public, this is what, imagine how good it's going to be when you have your own building. And so we're doing that now, and we were able to get some significant fundraising already because of people getting excited about that. So I think that you'll see a, a more visible presence, a more virtual presence, but I think that even in the best case scenario, it's eight, nine years away before these buildings are up. We've got time for one more, I think. Hey, may I ask, um, uh, you mentioned Mr. Jenkins at the beginning and also towards the end. May I ask what his first name was? Princey. Princey Jenkins. Thank you. Uh -huh. uh, that was a short question, so we have time <laughs> for one more. <laughs> yes, John. Mm -hmm. I presume you went there and saw the thing done for truth telling. 
One of the great strengths of the Smithsonian is that they paid for me to go everywhere. So I spent a lot of time in South Africa. As I said, I taught there every summer from 90 to 99 on Robben Island and spent a lot of time at what is now the Apartheid Museum. In some ways, South Africa changed the way I thought about history. South Africa convinced me that history is not just about yesterday, that it really is a tool to transformation. And so that really changed the way I thought about things. And um, I think that for me, going to South Africa, I think I went, the first time I went was 1988. Um, going to South Africa just changed me. And I think that, so the irony of fighting a slave ship thanks to my friends in South Africa was not lost on me. Everyone, please join me in thanking you.